welcome to the seventh episode of the official As Began podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Welcome back, everybody. Or if you're here for the first time, welcome for the first time. I'm happy to introduce those of you who don't yet know her to Dr. Aglaya Zelos. Dr. Zelos works in Athens. She's new, she's recently taken a strong interest in acute liver failure in pediatric patients. And in Athens, a few years ago, she coordinated a single-topic conference held by Espigan that attempted to summarize what we know about what acute liver failure is in children, infants, toddlers, and how we should address it. With that as the lead-in, of course, we're going to be talking about acute liver failure in children today. Aglaya, have you been seeing acute liver failure of the sort that has made all the newspapers recently? We haven't had a true case uh, in Greece uh, so far. Nothing like that. I imagine that that is really a T-cell-rich hepatitis. And we've recently spoken with Dr. Marianne Samin of King's College London on that topic. And I'd like to know what, why in the world do you think that Greece might have been spared this? Why is there a, a geographical disparity in Europe um, in the distribution of these children? Well, T-cell hepatitis uh, induced an acute liver failure. It could be a different entity. It could be uh, an immune reaction to uh, some sort of infection. It may have to do with exposure to coronavirus. could be um, uh, of other uh, autoimmune or immune etiology. Who knows? Um, but um, here in Greece, uh, we haven't had a case uh, that resulted in liver failure, at least with an unknown etiology, like the ones that were described in Northern Europe and uh, in America, hmm. in one state, in one particular state in Alabama. So I really don't know what the, the, the reason for that is. I guess we're still collecting data on a lot of aspects of acute liver failure in children. The position papers that you drew up as a result of that single-topic conference are, for me, as a histopathologist, frankly, frightening. <laughs> There's so much to know. There are so many things that can cause liver failure. And <laughs> if I were working in a peripheral hospital as a pediatric hepatogastroenterologist, and a child with suspected liver failure came into my ward, I would say, get that child to Athens, that, if I lived in Greece. Um, isn't, that the, isn't that the most important thing to know about acute liver failure in children? Exactly. The first thing is to understand that a child is in liver failure. And uh, that is a common mistake, not really understanding that a child is in trouble because not only you have to have the biochemical evidence, elevated liver enzymes and uh, uh, cholestasis, meaning uh, elevated direct uh, hyperbilirubinemia, but you have to recognize that a patient has prolonged 
um, prothrombin time and not necessarily elevated ammonia levels. And that is a mistake that is often made and uh, uh, a clinical case of acute liver failure may be overlooked because um, in children, uh, especially those with prolonged uh, PTN and INR of greater than two, we do not need an increased ammonia level to call it acute liver failure. So any child with uh, uh, sky-high transaminases and a prolonged PT should be thought that is not responsive to vitamin K, is thought to have acute liver failure. And um, acute liver failure is really hard to be recognized uh, in smaller children and babies. And um, these patients need to be recognized early and then transferred to a, a tertiary center because as you've seen in the paper, the, the, the workup that needs to be done is huge. Um, it needs to be uh, immediate. It involves uh, extensive investigations. You have to be able to exclude metabolic disease. You have to be able to do viral uh, studies, uh, mainly PCR um, virology because um, serology is not very sensitive in picking up viral infections in the setting of acute liver failure. Uh -huh. So there are a lot of you know, sensitive, detailed things that you have to do to get to the diagnosis and actually get to appropriate treatment for these patients. You have to have the appropriate specialists right there ready to swarm all over that child and to get the studies underway. Um, well, we'll talk about gestational-associated alloimmune liver disease later, I suppose. But one of the things that I took away from those papers is that it's really not uncommon for a child with acute liver failure to need to go on to liver transplantation, that supportive care doesn't work so well as one might hope. Am I wrong in that? You're right, and uh, when it comes to small babies, uh, to uh, neonates and uh, young infants, uh, these are these have these this age group has a very uh, poor outcome. They are very much at risk of death because uh, they have um, metabolic diseases that sometimes are undiscovered. They can have um, uh, this GALT process, the gestational autoimmune liver disease, that's uh, pretty catastrophic and if not recognized, uh, it leads to death in the majority of cases. And um, so this age group is very um, uh, sensitive and uh, needs immediate attention. And one very common cause uh, is viral infections, perinatal infections in that uh, age group, uh, such as uh, herpes virus infections. So that is essential to intervene early, even before getting your PCR uh, confirmation with uh, acyclovir in the small babies. This is a category that is very puzzling and creates a lot of distress uh, in this, the clinical setting when it happens. Neonatal acute liver failure. Neonatal acute liver failure. I do remember one liver biopsy specimen that I saw at King's in which the liver was necrotic. There were herp there were herpes virus inclusions all through the liver biopsy specimen, completely unsuspected. The mother had never had what she recognized as an acute herpes virus infection. These things can come out of nowhere and bite you. And and <laughs> the the number of things that you have to keep in mind 
and that you have to study and have to be ready to intervene in, again, the best possible reason for moving the child to a tertiary care institution as quickly as possible. Are you running into children in whom these transfers are delayed? Sometimes, yes, but in our country, we are very sensi sensitized. Um, and uh, um, Hagia Sophia Children's Hospital, where I work, uh, is the referral center for pediatric liver disease uh, in Greece. And we get transfers from the islands, from um, different parts of Greece. And uh, pediatricians are kind of sensitive in, in picking up those patients with liver disease. And we do certainly have patients in acute liver failure. We see quite uh, frequently cases, yes. Frequent instances of liver failure. What's the distribution among your set of cases? What, what? We have uh, cases of all ages. Certainly we have the neonates and the infants uh, less than one year of age that they present with either infections or gout or um, metabolic liver disease of various etiologies. And then we have the toddlers and older children that present also with metabolic liver disease, autoimmune diseases, mitochondrial uh, diseases. We've had cases recently. And then we have the older children that present with um, um, medications, uh, overdosing medications. Uh, common oh, ones yes. is uh, acetaminophen, oh, yes. but it has a good outcome usually. We never, we've never had to uh, do a liver transplant in a patient with uh, acetaminophen toxicity. And, uh, but the majority of kids are in the school age category. That interests me. Most kids with acute liver failure are in the school age category. Are you taking that up into adolescence for kids with um, Wilson disease as well? We've had, for the older children, we've observed that we have uh, Wilson's disease and we have autoimmune hepatitis. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Right. Well, I want to take issue with one aspect of uh, your classification of liver disease, and that is with GALD. I want to, I've always wanted to call that not acute liver failure, but acute on chronic liver failure. That there's chronic liver failure in utero in a lot of these kids and that once there's no longer the placenta, once there's no longer the mother to provide life support, then the baby crashes and burns. And it was interesting to see that it was considered as ALF, pediatric ALF, in your paper. If I'd been on, I was nobody asked me, of course, but I, if I'd been there, I'd have said, "Hey, let's just let's just shift this a little bit." Um. Was that, one of the reasons that I'd say that yes. is one of the reasons that I'd say that is that so often in these kids, he can't have liver failure. He must be septic or something, because the transaminases aren't elevated. Well, gee whiz, there's no more liver cells left to die. Where are you going to get the transaminases from? They're ominously low. <laughs> That is correct. And actually, there could be very tricky to recognize those infants that they're engulfed because only last week we had a case like this where a baby was born with um, transaminases that were not very elevated, but the baby had cholestasis, had hypoalbuminemia, had uh, prolonged uh, PT, low platelets, 
and um, a devastating picture started bleeding and um, immediately went into um, um, low renal perfusion and uh, the diagnosis was missed by the neonatologist and by the time they, it was transferred to uh, the, uh, the pediatric, uh, the, the neonatal ICU at uh, our hospital, uh, I, I asked what was the ferritin and it was really high and then we started thinking about that. We gave the IVIG, which is the therapy for this autoimmune uh, liver disease and um, it did help for a little while, but then uh, the child relapsed. So it's really important for those cases to be recognized early so that you can intervene um, because um, there is poor outcome otherwise. But luckily we have this this, uh, this therapy to offer now, the IV immune globulin that uh, really has changed the outcome of the those infants, uh, has about 80% uh, improvement in more in mortality they they live and uh, unless it's given too early too late I mean then um, uh, then it's not helpful then it's not helpful no well with that in mind we have the questions of how to support an acute liver failure child with those patients you have the option of intravenous immunoglobulin that doesn't do a thing for viral infection or for mitochondrial disease or for some of the other th disorders that present in early infancy with overwhelming hepatocellular insufficiency. Uh, well, I'm just thinking about how difficult it is to sort these kids out timely and then to apply appropriate therapy. Right. A lot of different things need to happen uh, once you get a patient like that in your hands. First, you have to stabilize the patient. You have to do some initial care measures. Uh, patients need to be in the ICU setting. Uh, you need to fluid support them. You need to uh, um, correct their hypoglycemia. You need to probably give them antibiotics empirically. You don't know what's going on. This is a systemic multi-inflammatory response. Uh, so you see all the consequences of uh, inflammation that you have to treat. Most importantly, you have to make sure you don't get brain injury. You have to you make sure they you don't have increased intracranial pressure. As a result of hyperammonemia, you have to, uh, at the same time, you have to figure out what's going on. What is your differential diagnosis according to age? And uh, what we um, uh, highlighted in this paper and that came out of the studies um, from the PALF study in America was that age-appropriate diagnosis is very important. And... Um, since 40% of the cases remain indeterminate, uh, meaning you have no clue what's going on and therefore you have no uh, treatment to offer, you don't know what to give, you have to investigate those cases very thoroughly. 40% uh, unknown causes uh, in cases of liver failure, that's a, that's a tremendous percentage of uh, lack of diagnosis. And I think we need to work on that. Could it be a novel virus we're not catching? Could be, could it be something with the immune system? Could it be an incomplete workup? Um, these are the things that need to be addressed at a clinical level, in the clinical setting, uh, when we get a patient like that. Are there ongoing studies that seek to address these questions? Multi-center studies? So, if, t t tell us about those, please. 
there have been multi-center studies and in fact that is the only way to go because cases are not that many and unless you collaborate and have registries uh, there's not going to be able to draw any conclusions from um, individual observations and case reports so um, I believe uh, observations are being continued and long-term follow-up but uh, in terms of the cases here in Europe you know we have to be able to continue with registries and and, um, and, 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 and and try to get some more data on the prevalence, uh, the, uh, the, the diagnoses that are prevalent uh, in Europe and, um, and go on from there. Is there at the moment any central coordinated registry? I think that that's going to be a no, just judging from the gap between my question and your answer. <laughs> Uh, there are um, registries for uh, liver transplantation uh, uh-huh. in Europe, and they collect a lot of the data uh, centrally for those. Uh, but uh, for acute liver failure, I, I think there should be an opportunity to uh, uh, to do an, uh, an active registry for that uh, as well in Europe. That sounds, as you say, like the only way to make progress is to have all of these kids tabulated and to have all of them worked up in a more or less uniform manner so that there aren't the questions of, did we miss something? That was one of the principal categories in unidentified causes of liver failure is we just didn't look for the right thing according to what I what I just heard you say. Um, is that something that SBGAN ought to be central in organizing and coordinating, don't you think? I agree, and um, one of the most important things in uh, uh, treating acute liver failure is uh, the timing of liver transplantation, Uh the decision uh, to proceed with a liver transplant, um, the criteria um, that a patient must meet, and unfortunately in pediatrics it's really hard to um, assess the timing because we cannot follow the, the scores. Uh, that uh, are used uh, for adults because children are different and there have been several scores that uh, have been used the King's College criteria, the cliche um, and uh, the MELD system uh, regarding the um, uh, severity of uh, the patient in acute liver failure and, and then the timing of the liver transplantation but Again, there are limitations because metabolic liver disease is so uh, variant and um, has different outcomes and different presentations, and and you never know um, when is the right time. And actually, the best the best time is the individual time for each patient. We do individual oh, yeah. care, individual mm-hmm. decisions. Um, mm-hmm. You need one thing you need to, to be careful about is uh, you know where to draw the line, and there are certain contraindications for. Uh, patients in uh, uh, acute liver failure that require liver transplantation. There is systemic disease, but then again, we've stepped on um, on those cases, and uh, even uh, say in mitochondrial disorders, sometimes you may proceed with liver transplantation if if the head is not affected, if the brain is working and is in uh, that the child has good neurological function. So we make exceptions on an individual basis and. Uh, Certainly, because we have the living-related uh, uh, living transplantations, if a mother is willing to give in those circumstances, we go ahead and we proceed, and there's a solution for this child. 
Well, liver transplantation isn't um, all or nothing anymore, is it? Not with auxiliary transplantation, with, with the possibility of providing either a temporary organ that can be discarded after the native liver recovers, or for that matter with uh, hepatocyte transplantation, which I think Céline Filippi and Anil Dawan at King's are working on in particular. It's easier, right. I think, for surgeons to adopt a new technique and to utilize it than it would be to set up a hepatocyte uh, isolation and alginate encapsulation and all the rest of it at a particular institution. But how many institutions in Europe are actually performing auxiliary transplantation other than King's? King's uh, is the uh, the center has, that has published, and I, I really uh, know that they've had more cases than anybody else, I think. Uh, and uh, it is a brilliant uh, idea. It's a bridge, really, uh, between to recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, you have to be familiar with it. There's got to be the protocols. Uh, King's is really the only center that I know that uh, performs this kind of... Um, uh, liver transplant uh, in, in patients. That's Certainly, true. hepatocyte mm-hmm. transplantation has a promising, a promising future, but uh, everything is experimental at this stage. Well, that's for sure. Uh, but so was bridge transplantation with the auxiliary liver, and uh, at least in King's, now that's part of the therapeutic armamentarium. You must be concerned in monitoring these patients, are we moving to transplantation perhaps too fast? For example, with the acute liver failure of recurrent type, the ones that have to do with transfer RNA deficiencies, is there is there any, without the molecular biology workup fully in hand, how can you be sure? I have to say something about genetics. Genetics has becoming so important in our days. Uh And uh, in fact, um, uh, we try to send for genetics as soon as possible. Um, And uh, it really helps you, really guides you. Uh, If you can get genetics um, to turn around uh, in just a few weeks, in some centers they can get uh, genetic information within uh, weeks or within a week. <laughs> and uh, that helps because then it determines prognosis. It really helps you make decisions regarding uh, transplantation. Obviously, you don't want to transplant the patient who may not need a transplantation, but um, you don't want to proceed with a transplantation uh, for somebody who uh, would not need it uh, or would not uh, make good use of the, the organ. That's for sure, too. Um Looking through all the list of cases of possible etiologies, I felt really abashed as a histopathologist because it seemed to me that liver biopsy was falling way to the back of the line among the the tests that might provide useful information. Um, When do you recommend liver biopsy in your patients? That is, again if they can be biopsied because of hypocoagulability. See, that's the limitation. Uh, 
patients uh, have a prolonged PT, they're pretty high risk to do a percutaneous liver biopsy. Uh, they could be small babies um, with bleeding diathesis. It's really um, the complications that you think of when uh, performing a liver biopsy in this setting. Now, many centers, um, unfortunately, we don't have it in Greece. Uh, you can do the transjugular liver biopsy. You have to have certainly experienced uh, um, interventional radiologists for this. Uh, you may get a lot of information. I strongly believe in uh, liver histology, and um, it's really, I think, it, 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 you, you need to get as much information as you need from, from, uh, from your patient. However, uh, if uh, in cases of devastating liver injury and necrosis, you tell me whether you're going to be able to help us uh, um, at all. Devastating liver injury and necrosis. Well, I could at least tell you, I think, if there had been clinically inapparent liver disease for a long while beforehand, okay. that would shift from acute on chronic and acute. That might be important to you. I could also, I think, if it was a lovely, big, thick, with plasma cell, lupoid-type autoimmune hepatitis, I could say, hey, go on. Give the steroids. <laughs> um, and that with that within a day. And you might not have your viral you might not have all your viral studies back in time, but I could say, look, on the odds, this is just going to be another autoimmune hepatitis. So maybe I could be useful. Maybe. I think uh, small studies on liver biopsy in the setting of acute liver failure have shown that uh, liver histology is helpful. Well, now that I know that uh, I haven't wasted my life in liver biopsy interpretation, I can ask you, where do we go from here? We've talked, touched briefly on the need for coordinated central registries and coordinated and defined programs of investigation of patients with acute liver failure. What should these future studies be looking for in order to make a difference in how we diagnose and how we treat? Well, there are a lot of questions that need to be answered, a lot of challenges to be addressed. For instance, why are younger children more prone to indeterminate PALF? Is there a role for uh, immune and metabolic uh, predispositions? Why are younger livers more resistant to uh, ischemic and vascular injury. Um, is uh, PALF also characterized by rebalanced uh, hemostasis, like a hypercoagulable state as uh, in adults? Uh, is the hemostatic profile similar in PALF of different etiologies, for instance? Um, is this activated T-cell hepatitis uh, that you previously mentioned a complication variety of hepatic insults? Uh, does the diagnosis require measures of immune activation, peripheral circulation, and a liver biopsy in the, uh, in the acute setting, as you mentioned? Would immunosuppression interrupt harmful inflammatory cascades or dampen regeneration? We, I think we need to know more about the, um, the biology of inflammation. That requires a lot of further investigation because in that way you can get into more 
pathways. You can get uh, more into, uh, you know, finding new therapeutics uh, to intervene. And then on on the clinical setting, in children, uh, when we come to uh, acute liver failure, we need to improve ourselves in uh, the setting of the ICU. Uh, how do we prevent the complications of hyperammonemia, brain injury, um, you know, brain imaging? When do you do it? Obviously, when the patient is uh, safe to be transferred to the MRI, but then uh, does the, is the MRI uh, a, a good uh, test to assess for uh, high clinical encephalopathy? Um, I mean, where, where do we go with uh, the um, um, uh, continuous renal replacement therapy? When do you start it? Obviously, the sooner the, uh, the better, uh, but uh, what is the outcome in children? I mean, we need more studies, more children, uh, larger samples um, to draw uh, better conclusions uh, in, in the management uh, of those patients. And for that, it seems, at least to me, that we need ESPGAN involvement and coordination and support. That's true. Well, if you can put on a single-topic conference, you certainly ought to be able to pull together all of those people who contributed to the conference and say, now, let's work on a program to address these questions. Is that underway? Well, um... The conference really brought together uh, experts in the field. Um, We also are in the process of trying to write a position paper um, about the management of acute liver failure and uh, then proceed from that. Uh, Acute liver failure is being considered uh, in the hepatology committee as a very serious project to work Mm -hmm. on. So um, we will get you more information about that, uh, I hope, hopefully soon. I'm looking forward to it. Folks, I want to tell you a little bit about my own interactions with Aglaia. I think they go back 30 years or so, right? At least 20. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't make her, I didn't want to make her seem older than she is. I apologize. <laughs> well, at least 20 then, at least 20. And... I think that I, I've been fascinated by this woman ever since I found out that she lives and she practices in Greece, and she has the perfect American accent of my homeland, the mid-Atlantic, she, Baltimore, Maryland. And now, now I looked at her CV and I found out, well, how about that? She came in from gosh knows where and went to the University of Maryland, where she took all the prizes. And then she went on to medical school in Maryland, where she took all the prizes. At Georgetown, where she took all the prizes. And then she went on to further training at Johns Hopkins. And you won't be surprised to learn. She took all the prizes. But... Now I have to ask her, how did you make your way to the United States? Most yeah. most most Europeans go for fellowship. They go after they're incapable of learning the language. <laughs> well, my father was a thoracic surgeon, and uh, he trained at Georgetown, so I was exposed to American culture and the American universities from an early age. <laughs> and okay. uh, when I was in high school, I took a trip and, uh, and saw Georgetown and University of Maryland, and I said, oh, wow, this is where I want to, to study. So then I left 
when I was 17 years old, I left Greece and I went to America and I stayed there for 15 years. So that's, that's where I get the accent. Um, it's a love. It's, it's a lovely accent. It's so charming to hear a European who doesn't use British vowels. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is that aside. So you you decided to come back to Greece. You must have had any number of offers. Hey, stay with us. Stay with us. Come on. And but you said no. It was a very difficult decision. It was more of a, a decision of lifestyle. Uh, I Sometimes I regret leaving Johns Hopkins, which was actually one of the top hospitals in the United States, as you know. And uh, it wasn't only uh, the uh, technology that was available, but it was my mentors. I was really mm, devastated mm. to leave those people in my department. Um, Kathy Schwartz and who else? Kathy Schwartz was my mentor and I owe everything I know to her. Um, uh, it was Maria Oliva Hemker, who's now chief of the department, oh, uh, brilliant. Okay. Uh -huh. um, it was uh, Jose Saavedra at the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Carmen yeah. Gofari, mm -hmm. who's still there. Um, and uh, really, uh, it was a great place uh, to receive mentorship. And uh, if I have to give an advice uh, to um, just uh, our newer young colleagues, I would say, Pick a mentor. Um, it's it's so important to be exposed to people that can bring you onto uh, new ideas to make you think outside the box. Uh, give you give an example, uh, and um, uh, you know be professionals in what they do, and uh, really give you an inspiration. I was very lucky to be. Um, working and training at uh, Johns Hopkins. Eternally grateful. But my professors. You, you went back. You went back. Lifestyle. Greece was, well, aside from crab cakes, I don't think there's much that Baltimore offers that Greece does not. <laughs> well, um, I made a mistake because I thought maybe going to Greece I would be working less. But uh, <laughs> actually, <laughs> it was quite the opposite. I have to work, continue to work, I continue to work as hard as I, I did in the U.S. So um, that, uh, that was really, um, that, was, uh, that was a miscalculation. <laughs> Anyhow, you're back in Greece. You've made a wonderful career for yourself. You're contributing nationally and internationally. And I guess if you've listened to these podcasts before, then you know that at this point, we generally ask the person being interviewed for something that symbolizes their country to them, a song. Have you had a chance to think about what song might be yours? Well, um, I'm going to stay away from Zorba the Greek, and uh, I think I'm going to, <laughs> to uh, pick Chariots of Fire by Vangelis Papathanasiou, who is a great composer, and uh, he composed the soundtrack of this amazing mu movie, an award-winning movie, as you can remember, back in the 80s, Chariots of Fire, on uh, two uh, British athletes that uh, put aside prejudice and class distinctions and uh, really uh, uh, won Olympic medals uh, in the Olympic Games uh, uh, in 1924 in Paris. 
It was a very inspiring movie, and uh, the soundtrack is so inspiring. And um, actually, it came up again uh, in the press because the uh, composer died a few weeks ago. Oh, oh no. And uh, his songs were played here in Greece um, uh, quite a bit in the last few weeks. So it's Chariots of Fire. like to listen to the song in full length, please check out our SBGAN playlist. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your insights into pediatric acute liver failure with us and with our listeners. Thank you, Alex, very much. It was great chatting with you after all these years. Um, it was a pleasure and I had a great time. Thank you very much.